0: The following is a message by Professor Joel Kim from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, please visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. Let's pray. Father, open our ears this morning so that we may hear your voice directly. Open our hearts so that we may receive and accept and apply these truths for our lives. We thank you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 17, verses 18 through 16. Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 through 16. Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So far the reading of his word. Incheon is the second largest port city in South Korea, approximately 17 miles from its capital in Seoul. It's also the city in which I was born and was raised until our family immigrated to the States about 30 years ago. It's not my birth that makes this city quite famous, however, uh, contrary to popular opinion. But what makes this city famous is a historic event that occurred in the middle of the Korean War, the most important war for Koreans during the 20th century. There, in the dawn, you see the allied forces actually landing in the port and dividing the North Koreans who are attacking in half. It's the divide-and-conquer mentality led by and orchestrated by none other than General Douglas MacArthur. He is so famous in Korea that he is considered the liberator of Korea in some ways. And as someone who stands in high standing, he was honored by the Korean nation by a park that was created under the name Freedom Park, and in the center of that park stands a five-meter statue of MacArthur overlooking the ocean from which he actually came in. It is a sign of a grateful nation that indeed this great general led the nation to its freedom, and to this day, many of us who grew up in the city and throughout the nation visit the statue, and it's one of the most memorable places for many to visit in the city of Incheon. The reason for this recollection is not simply to give us a history of South Koreans in some ways, but wars are remembered this way. Wars are remembered by the generals that led each of the sides, by the weapons that were used, or the strategies, and they all tell a story of war. The text that we read this morning is also an account of war, its war history. But this war narrative is different than many other narratives that we read before. Unlike the war histories of the contemporary times, this war history focuses on things that we did not necessarily expect. One thing that's interesting about this story is the fact that it doesn't tell us anything about the very things that we would expect from war histories. The expected details are actually missing and the silence is quite telling for us. We don't know who the enemy is. The author could have told us that the very first battle for the Israelites were against the Amalekites in chapter 17. Not just against the Amalekites, but any battle that was waged after coming out of their bondage in Egypt. The author could have also mentioned that the Amalekites were the direct descendants of Esau, the brother of Jacob, and certain historical animosity existed between the two nations in the first place. The author could have also mentioned that the Amalekites were nomadic tribes and their battle could have been connected to Israel's discovery of water and some natural resource that all of them required. However, the author does not tell us anything about the enemy. The author also refuses to tell us anything about the leaders. Unlike the expected fanfare surrounding the generals and the strategists of war who can forget names like Colin Powell or David Petraeus, the author chooses to refrain from introducing these men to us. In fact, unexpectedly, Joshua enters the story. Not only was he not mentioned before this incident, we can only guess at the fact that he is a faithful servant of Moses and the designated military leader of the Israelites. Nor do we know who her is. We later find out that he's one of the sons of Caleb, the only one of two spies, the other being Joshua, who, after seeing the promised land, remained faithful to God. All these individuals and names that would have been heralded in modern accounts of war, in this account of war, they remain silent. We have no understanding of who these individuals are. Of course, we know nothing about strategies either. Other than the name of the location, Rifidim, which remains a place of mystery to scholars even to this day, the author does not include any other circumstantial information. The story lacks any geographical information and thus any discussion of strategy. How did they lead themselves to victory? Moreover, it doesn't provide any information about the readiness of the Israelites. There were only chapters before, servants and slaves in Israel. Where did they get their weapons? What kind of weapons do they have? And really, who's fighting? And who's ready to fight this war? All these information we would normally expect in war histories, but this particular account of the war, it remains silent on those information that we would normally desire and expect. In fact, the narrative is quite surprising. Instead of the expected details, we are left with a short account of what actually did occur. The battle account is only two verses, where it begins in verse 10, where it says, so Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And it completes the battle account in verse 13, where it says, so Joshua overcame the Amalekites' army with the sword. Quite matter of fact and succinct in what telling us what this battle was all about. Instead of concentrating on tactics, maneuvers, weapons, individual bravery, the author takes the account away from the chaos in the plains where the battle is actually being waged and takes us as readers on a different ride up a hill where Moses, Aaron, and Hur stood. You and I know the story pretty well and I'm sure that your parents have recounted this story for you many times as well. Here as the Israelites bravely or perhaps cowardly, with weapons of choice, or weapons just ready-made as the time of war came upon them. We have no account, but simply, Moses, who by this time was well past his 100th birthday, stood on the hill, and the camera, instead of zooming on the bravery of men, zooms in on Moses, who's standing upon that hill. He raised his arms, as the story goes, and which usually indicates the benediction and blessings of God. And as he remained atop of the hill, praying with his arms raised, here the Israelites on the ground would win. When he's fatigued and tired, his arms will be lowered. And when he did so, the Israelites would start losing. It's difficult for us to tell whether the Israelites beneath were able to realize or recognize what what Moses was doing. I cannot imagine, in the heat of battle, the soldiers having the luxury to simply stand and watch the arms of Moses going up and down and reacting to it based upon what Moses might be doing. Here, the momentum fluctuated according to the prayers and benediction of Moses before God or when his prayers were no longer Uh, the Israelites started losing, and the rise and fall of Moses' arms were really directly tied to the rise and fall of the Israelites. The climax of this story is reached and when Moses is too tired. After all, he's quite old. His arms are too tired, and he lowers his arms. And as the Israelites started losing, the younger men surrounding Moses, Aaron and her in particular, were getting alarmed. Here, the Israelites' future was dependent upon the prayers of Moses, and they're wondering, what should they do? And they came up with a wonderful idea. Their idea was to simply sit this old man down, providing a rock for him to rest. And on each side, as they lifted up his arms, they held his arms up in support, so that Moses can continually pray and bless what is taking place beneath him. They successfully aid Moses until the sunset, by which time Joshua and the Israelites defeated the Amalekites. The author, by ignoring the battle scene, something that you and I would be more interested in, and concentrating and zooming in on Moses, the author teaches us an important lesson about this battle. The real battle that was being waged and taking place was not in the plains, in the actual battle scenes. But the real battle was being waged where Moses was praying. As Moses later says, in this battle scene, God is at war. Despite what we might think and what we might expect, in this first battle, the Israelites quickly realize that it's not them, but God. Our God who is with us and for us, for the Israelites, also goes before them. What's interesting about this scene is that the Israelites are reinforce this notion of God at war throughout the Old Testament. Who can forget the notion of the fall of Jericho where the command was given not to arm themselves in ways that might defeat the enemy and the walls built before them, but simply to go around the building and on the last day go around it multiple times and yell, not the kind of winning strategy that you and I are looking for. Or who can forget the story of Gideon and the Midianites? When 32,000 gathered to fight, led by Gideon, God, instead of asking for more, sends 22,000 away who are fearful. And with the 10,000 remaining still too large, what he asks is simply that they be tested by the drinking of water, and only a commando team of 300 were remaining behind. Not only is it far few in number than expected for a battle like this, the weapons God provided, not necessarily the kind of ones that you and I would love to run into battle with. And simply again, by fear of the Lord being placed in them, they defeated the enemy, the Midianites in this case. And the lesson of that story is told when it says, so that Israel may not boast against me, that her own strength has saved her. It's not surprising then, in the New Testament, without getting to all the details, that oftentimes the story or the narrative of Jesus conquering is done with a warlike description. We see in places like having disarmed the powers authorities, Colossians 2.15 says, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And his victory over his enemies summarized this way when he says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption. God is indeed at war. He is at war for us in the Son. God who is with us and for us, he indeed goes before us. Now, we will not be completing this story unless we remember what happened to the Amalekites. Remember what it said Israelites must remember. And they even set up a memorial so that they might remember. In verse 16 of chapter 17, he says, The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. A reminder to the Israelites of God's promise to be before them as faithful God leading them as he is at war. Do you remember what happened in Numbers? As you remember, the 12 spies who enter the promised land to check out the land of Canaan, Canaan came back and reported on the lay of the land and the people who lived within. Numbers 13 and 14 give us a detailed look of what took place. Do you remember the report that they gave? As they gave the report, this is what they said in verses 28 through 29. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there, the Amalekites, dwell in the land. Amalekites dwell in the promised land. What was intriguing is that God had promised already that he will blot out, wipe out the Amalekites, and that he, on behalf of Israel, will be at war against them from generation to. generation the lesson seems fairly clear to me it's not that you should consider your exams papers and your professors to be your enemies that God will go before you and blot them out that's obviously not the conclusion that we simply want to draw but we simply have a God who does indeed go before us if God is for us who can stand against us is what Paul said And as he declares that truth with confidence in Romans 8.31, here we are reminded, just as the Israelites were, that our God is for us, and he indeed goes before us. And the simple truth is this, that for all of us, in response to what he taught us, we must trust him, for he is a faithful God who goes before us. We must depend on him, and not for a moment think that this is about us and that this is by us, that we must pray to him. For the battle that is waged is not things of power, things that we expect, things where we gird our loins and go and win victory over our enemies. But simply as we, who are always taught to be on our own and do things on our own, simply learn dependence, utter dependence, and turn to him in prayer. My friends, I realize that the next few days and weeks will be arduous for you. And one thing that often happens for many of us is that when we get busy, those things that are most important are taken out of our schedule. And we concentrate on those things that are less significant for us. And the problem for us often is that we start majoring in those things that are not major. And we start forgetting those things that are truly at the heart of who we are. Brothers and sisters, I beseech you this morning. In light of the faithfulness of God, who is for us and goes before us, trust him, depend on him, turn to him in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. You know our weaknesses. You know our forgetfulness. We suffer from spiritual amnesia daily forgetting the blessings and the life that you have given to us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Lord, we do not need a week or a day that celebrates Thanksgiving for us to be turning to you and giving thanks. For indeed, all that we are and that we have, all the road that we have taken and we will take, belong to you. So Lord, we trust and depend upon you. We turn to you in prayer. We ask that by your spirit, you strengthen us, guide us, Motivate us no matter what we face. We thank you for this time. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2012, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.